We lack bees, we lack insects, and it's a severe issue for biodiversity. Because flowers are dependent on insects and vice versa, right? So if you eat traditional honey, are you promoting bee health? Not really. Large-scale monoculture is an issue in crop agriculture and beekeeping. Hear from Darko Madrick, the co-founder and CEO of Melibio. I got to try their plant-based honey in Switzerland last year, and it tasted so similar, I wondered whether they had just poured some natural honey into the bottle. Instead of using something like rice syrup, Melibio uses the compounds found in honey, rebuilding it from the ground up. In the future, they want to use precision fermentation to add a few compounds that are hard to replace. But is that necessary? Come with us into the world of bees and honey. Let's jump right in. Red to Green is the most in-depth podcast on food and agriculture sustainability. Covering each topic in over 12 episodes, let's move the food system from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. I'm your host, Marina Schmidt, and you're listening to Season 6, Biotech and Food. Your personal connection to honey is that you actually also have a background in the industry. So let's look at the issues. Why does honey need to be changed? It seems quite fine, right? We have honey. So what is the problem with the honeybees? Oh, oh Marina, where should I start with all the problems? <laughs> I, I mean... Let me start with giving folks in the audience a little bit of a context here. So I have over a decade of experience in the honey industry, in which I spent most of that time actually in a traditional honey industry that relies on commercial beekeeping and honeybees as a medium of production. When I finished my business school, the first job that I got was I became a management trainee in one of the largest honey companies in Eastern Europe. And I was collaborating with 12,000 beekeepers collecting honey from them, homogenizing, processing that honey in 20-ton batches, and shipping that honey from Eastern Europe mainly to Germany and Norway, and all, all these Western European markets where you can get those 30 euro per kilogram units of honey in, in, in retailers. So I'm coming from the very industry that I got frustrated about. And the reason I got frustrated is that after spending time in working for the largest European honey companies, I realized that reliance on that species is not only damaging the species itself, the European honeybees or Apis mellifera, but actually what was happening is that there's a turf war between bee species. Again, it sounds crazy, but there's like 20,000 bee species, and most of them are actually not making honey. Only the honeybees are doing that at scale. And what started happening is that with the rising demand for honey, more people started doing beekeeping, creating these massive farms. I've seen one in Hungary has 10,000 beehives, 10,000 beehives, and each beehive contains 50,000 honeybees. It's a crazy number of one bee species that, once deployed, doesn't allow other pollinators, wild and native bee species, bumblebees, to thrive in the same place. But what I'm trying to say here is, Marina, there's a couple of issues here. And sole reliance on that animal to, to supply a $10 billion industry. If you walk into Edeka or Reve, you'll find honey in granola, in bars, in juices, in alcoholic, non-alcoholic drinks, 
I would say that there's no product category in a retailer in Europe or in the United States in which you won't find at least one SKU or one product that contains honey. And thinking about a large industry that honey is and thinking about the unsustainable reliance on one animal that is not liking the process, not getting stronger out of that process, and that which pure existence and artificial multiplication is actually not helping the planet because if you just have one bee species, you don't have essentially bee biodiversity. And bee biodiversity you need for the diversity of the plants and you need plants for food and CO2 absorption. I guess some people would also say that if you create plant-based honey, that's in the end fraudulent honey. So as far as I understood, you have been working on a precision fermentation path to creating honey, but so far you've been successful in creating plant-based honey. Is that something you want to push forward, plant-based honey, or has that just been one step in the development? To address the first comment that you made, I, I understand that certain people think that the product, if it's not made in the same way like we are used to for that product to be made, it can't be that product. And I understand that position, but I would like to provide a different perspective here. And thinking about honey, you know, honey is a hard case study because honey is a very complex product. And if you think about this product that for the past 9,000 years have been made by honeybee, it's a very hard case study to be replicated on a molecular level. So we at Melibio, we started with a precision fermentation because precision fermentation allows us to build a complex production model that replicates what's happening in honeybees' honey stomach. Bees fly from flower to flower, they suck up pollen and nectar, and then they have a certain enzymatic reaction happening, helping them breaking that into the building blocks of honey. So we started with that, and then we realized that's one part of the honey. But before that, there are certain parts of honey that directly come from the plants. And then we said, okay, while we are still working on this model that's at scale that will help us get the complexity of our product on 100% of a molecular matching of honey, there's certain work that we can do on the plant-based side that can help us with the looks of the product, with the consistency, with the flavor. So what we achieved, Marina, is that we were able to build two technological approaches that at some point will intersect where plant-based approach helped us work with certain plants and turn them into a plant-based part of the honey. And then precision fermentation is a long-term approach that will get the complexity of our product matching with honey. Our honey right now isn't at 100% of a molecular matching of honey. It's about 85 to 90%. And the remaining 10% will be something that the precision fermentation will help us get there. Precision fermentation at scale takes time, takes resources, takes a lot of knowledge to be fully scaled on a level that really does the job perfectly while following all the safety measures and regulatory measures. So that's where we are today. If people reach out to us, especially chefs, they can taste a plant-based product. Is that our ultimate goal? No, we really want to connect all the knowledge on the plant-based side plug in the precision fermentation and essentially produce honey at, at scale. I have not told you this before, but Red to Green kicked off at an event by ProVetch Incubator in March 2020. It was right before Corona was about to shut everything down. But during their event on cultivated meat, I was looking for interview guests and contacts 
for the first season on cellular agriculture, and I found them. The ProVeg Incubator was the first to specialize in alternative protein companies. If you're excited about the topic, check out their 12-week program. It offers mentorship, up to 300k in funding, and most importantly, lots of important contacts. They are particularly interested in startups developing egg, seafood and chicken alternatives, but also other ingredients and technologies that can help replace animal products on a mass scale. Some examples for companies that have gone through the ProVeg Incubator are the fermentation company Cultivated Biosciences, aiming to replace dairy, Bosque Foods, the mycelium startup, and Fly, the pea-based dairy startup. According to Christopher Kong, CEO of Better Nature, ProVeg is the world's best connected incubator in the plant-based industry. You can apply any time of the year, so grab your chance to build a company for a better world and check out ProVegIncubator.com. ProVegIncubator.com. Interesting. So, yes, I was able to taste the honey and I also talked with uh, a couple of people who tasted it and who also said the early iterations were not that good. And then I also talked to like one, two people who said it's so good. They're questioning whether you just put honey in it. Um, So part of that is also the wonder, like what is in there? So as far as possible, can you maybe dissect what are the main ingredients and sub ingredients? Yeah, absolutely, Marina. And when we launch our product into the market, it will be obvious and clear to everyone. Our philosophy is very simple. We want to make honey, and we're making honey, out of honey-native ingredients. For example, in real honey, you can't find rice syrup. So we don't use rice syrup. We believe that in the market for vegans right now, there's plenty of honey alternatives. There's honey made alternative made of tapioca, stevia, sugars, dates, and stuff like that. And we believe that market exists. And that market is something that it's not our market. We want to get into a position of replicating honey, using honey native ingredients, and using science and technology to help us put that together in a product that tastes great, that's nutrition, and that's absolutely safe. But back to your questions around ingredients. So we have sugars that are present in honey, which are mostly fructose and glucose. We have food acids that are found in honey, and we have a bunch of plant extracts that make honey antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and of course, water is about 20% of the product. That's the most part of the ingredients. There's a couple of more that people will be able to see once the product is launched. Well, if it's supposed to be the same as bee honey, I thought, let me research what actual bee honey is composed of. And I got stuck in a rabbit hole, well, or a beehive. Honeybees are sometimes called the chemists of nature. They use a complex process, including enzymes and dehydration, to transform the sugars and flower nectar into honey. Honey contains at least 181 components, creating its unique taste. It's mostly made up of glucose and fructose, and it is a super-saturated solution, meaning normally so much sugar couldn't be in so little water. So let's look at the process. Bees start with nectar, which is about 80% water. It's a thin and colorless solution that isn't very sweet. Nectar includes more complex sugars, and bees use enzymes to break them down into simpler sugars. 
is called hydrolysis. House bees regurgitate and re-drink the nectar over 20 minutes, then deposit it in a honeycomb and fan it to speed up the evaporation. You can make this process in a lab. Honey manufacturers pasteurize and filter light honey. This syrup contains fewer natural antioxidants, vitamins, minerals, and other natural nutrition. In unfiltered honey, pollen, nectar, and bee saliva add most of the nutrition. Dark honey may be less filtered. Though I wonder if Melibio wants to make it 100% molecularly the same, how will they include some bee saliva? We are backed by Food Labs, a leading European food VC that is teaming up with its sister fund Atlantic Labs to launch a Founders for Climate program. So if you or somebody you know is a passionate entrepreneur caring for the environment, this is your chance. You can receive pre-seed funding for your incorporated company, mentoring and advisory, and access to the network, which includes over 150 portfolio companies. Check it out now by going to foodlabs.com. Food labs.com. Let's circle back to the problem with honey, actually. I would like to look a little bit more into how having one type of honeybee affects plant diversity. Common sense would tell me that it's probably because honeybees have their preferences, their nyom-nyom, they eat <laughs> their, their nyom-nyom, their preferred flowers, and therefore only certain plants become pollinated while others are left out. Is the nyom-nyoming the right theory here? <laughs> yeah, honeybees are an important part of our survival on the planet, but they are not the only ones that we need to take care about. And by using them to make honey and do precision pollination, that specifically happens a lot in the United States, what we're doing is we're not leaving space for other species to live. It's really like it's a game of diversity, or if you want to take a little bit harder approach, it's like a turf war. There's species out there. If you throw in a bunch of artificially created new colonies of honeybees into a place that they haven't been before, no butterflies, bumblebees can really feed themselves. They won't survive. So it's not as simple as great bees, not so great bees. We should get rid of these bees and keep these bees. No. The story is very nuanced. We need the bee biodiversity because different species pollinate different types of plants. So ultimately, our survival on this planet will be dependent on the bee biodiversity. But since we like very simple solutions such as build hives, make more honeybee colonies to make more honey because we consume honey and honey is a great product, then we just play with the balance in the nature. And if we talk about pesticides and other things that affect the bees, there's so many issues happening in the bee space. And there's so many issues happening in the honey space. On a different note, have you heard about bee bread? Bee bread is essential for bees to survive the winter or pollen empty summertime. It's their food stash and it's made by storing pollen with honey. Pollen ferments in wax sealed honeycombs. The process has two steps. The first is a bacterial fermentation with lactobacillus bacteria. These bacteria love environments with lots of fructose and produce lactic acid. If you remember our episode on traditional fermentation, here's a recap. Lactic acid fermentation creates kimchi, sauerkraut, pickles, sourdough, bread and yogurt. So of course, 
this is a fit for bee bread. So the pH of the bee bread decreases, creating a perfect environment for yeast fermentation, also used for beer and sourdough. The yeast help preserve the bee bread, which is nutritionally different from pollen and honey. Just like sauerkraut is different from cabbage with sugar. Many honey colonies struggle to survive the winter now. A part of the problem is pesticides, because bees feed on pesticide-treated plants. And this is so interesting. So pesticides can also change the microbiome of bee bread. For example, fungicides can interfere with yeast fermentation and lead to spoiled bee bread. I find it so interesting that bees actually use fermentation to survive the winter and that pesticides are not just directly harmful to them, but also interfere with their process of making food and surviving. I had a follow-up question to that. My dad actually used to be a beekeeper, one of those very micro-scale ones. He had a little yard outside of the city and he would grow not just, not just vegetables, but also different fruits and some of these flowers, which were also then pollinated by the bees. And overall, it was more of an integrated system, right? And a lot of the talk that we have with regenerative agriculture, with developments in agriculture overall, is we need to think more holistically, we need to think in systems and not just plug something in and expect it to just operate on its own. So I'm wondering, what if the beekeepers would start becoming flower people and how would that look like? And I don't know, is that ever a practice that they just have massive flower fields next to them? It's, uh, it's so exciting that you're mentioning this, Marina, because I was thinking a lot about how many technical solutions are bringing evolution and the price tag of that evolution is a lot of people losing their jobs. So I was thinking about this paradigm shift in which we would help beekeepers actually transition into bee protectors. One of the best ways to protect bees is to plant wild flowers and plants. And imagine if one day... And just, this is just an idea. This is not something you know that we have as a strategy right now because this idea requires a lot of thinking. What if we can compensate folks for planting plants, processing them, and selling them as in inputs to food industry yeah. that would take those as, as kind of plant extracts and things like that? And I know that there are folks out there that are small-scale beekeepers. There are folks out there that to the extent that's possible, gently approach bees versus some other folks that just put them in some trucks and carrying them from one coast to another. There's nuances within the beekeeping world, and we all should have a big conversation happening. Mm, yeah, I think there are some parallels with the alternative protein industry that overall demand for honey is probably growing just like it's growing, maybe not as steep, but also like it's growing for meat, even just by the pure observation that we are growing as a human conundrum. I'll call it conundrum now. <laughs> and But at first, for a long time, it won't be replacing honey keepers anyway. It will be just adding to a growing amount of 
necessary supply to meet the growing demand. Sometimes when I would talk to people about Melibio, they would say, well, but it doesn't make sense to do precision fermentation, which is so specific and which can only produce individual ingredients for something that is molecularly so complex as honey. And of course, you're not trying to replicate the entirety of honey with precision fermentation. But if you say that it will be molecularly identical, what are we talking about? Like what percentage are we talking about? And how many different types of molecules would you need to create with precision fermentation? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great question. I was very happy that moving to California, I realized that many companies actually succeeded in changing their industries by taking one step at a time. I remember, Marina, when we applied for our accelerator, Big Idea Ventures, it was one of the you know hardest accelerator to get in. When we were sending a sample of what we had at that time of product, we had a note to Andrew Ive and the team saying, look at the sample that we are sending. Take a look at the color. Does it look like honey? It's there. Try to stir it, mix it with a spoon. Does the consistency look like honey? Yeah, it's there. But you know what? Don't taste it because we need your money to work on the taste and the flavor because what you're going to taste won't be as great as something that we're going to make a year after that. So, you know, taking that approach is very important. And I don't think that the companies can achieve their visions and missions in three to five years. I think we're rather talking about seven plus years and probably over a decade of knowledge that needs to get compounded resources that will actually take us to change the honey industry. And, you know, when people, some of the folks that are really excited about our launch and that are asking, okay, guys, you're promising that launch. When is that going to happen? I just think how bees took 9,000 years to evolve mm. and, you know, make honey and how Melibi is going to change that in a decade. And what's three years versus six versus 13 in that grand comparison of uh, the old and the new industry? Yeah, when I was talking to people about what is actually the value proposition of Melibio, some one or two were saying, isn't it already enough to do plant-based, right? If it's better and the taste is better, then the value proposition would be, well, it's a vegan honey replacement that is closer to actual honey. And I think from my marketers and brand standpoint, you know, I, I look at everything through that. The reason to add precision fermentation to it is that it gives you a certain claim to add to it, which is that it is the most close product to actual honey on the market, at which point it completely up level in its value proposition compared to the competitors. And as I guess saying, like corporate social responsibility, the, the issue is you get like 60% of the brand effect by just announcing things or by sort of doing something. And people aren't able to actually check like how much has been done and whether the goals have been achieved. And I'm not proposing that that will be the case with you, but just like the awareness that, well, at some point you will be able to state this, this claim without needing to go further in terms of developing more and more and more and more molecules to get to 98 and 99 and 99.5 the branding effect has already been checked off and is possible to be used. And you were saying that at least you're aiming to make it more affordable. And I guess the plant part of it, the, what is plant-based, can probably be more easily reduced in its cost. But the precision fermentation is quite a costly technology. So how do you plan to reduce the costs there? 
there's a couple of important parts of making sure that the cost parity is reached. And one of the most important things is definitely scale. I know there's a lot of fermentation experts out there, and some of them have different opinions. Some of them think that what we need is the biggest tank possible, is the biggest fermenter. Some of the folks think that maybe, you know, multiple location with mid-sized tanks is actually the most appropriate approach. So we're looking into all of those options. I'm very interested and very personally invested into the story of CapEx. Uh, CapEx is all the funds that you need to invest into hardware and things that don't exist. Right now, our position at Melibio has always been to think about, is there a creative way to reduce CapEx? Because just investing in more facilities and things like that is actually, in a way, it's important. And it's important that certain groups are doing, but if everybody would be doing it, it would mean that a bunch of us are starting from scratch and having our own separate trajectories in helping the world become a better place. That's something that makes startups right now slower. Whereas in a different approach, we can think about how creative partnerships can actually amplify each other in how a certain maybe unused facilities or certain companies that use certain facilities for other purposes and product, how that can be reimagined for what we're working on. And that's something that makes their VC indicators harder to hit because at the end of the day, LPs put money in funds and funds invest to have a return. And when there's a significant capex, the return is not as exciting. And when it's not as exciting, then the LP activity is not backing the future of it. Here's a little venture capital term refresher. Venture capital funds most companies in the food biotech space. It's a high risk investment funding high growth startups that hopefully end up having an IPO like Impossible Foods or a corporate buys them. That's where investment bankers get in on the deal. Most VCs hope to make their money not by having a bunch of profitable, slow-growing companies, but by finding a few home runs, like the next Facebook or Airbnb of food tech. Venture money is short-term money because VCs need to fundraise themselves. They fundraise from limited partners or LPs. Those can be corporations, wealthy families or individuals, or pension funds. And they expect to get their money back plus 20 to 25% on top for an average fund. So when VCs are slowing down their spending, that in turn is because VCs have a harder time to raise money from their limited partners. Venture capital is crucial for the industry. So learning about it helps to understand the system. Just think about how much of a progress there happened because Amazon Web Services and cloud services exist that certain people build and that now any developer in the world just walking into an Apple store and buying a computer can build on that infrastructure. Mm. We need that in the food industry. We can easily get in a trap of each and every company wanting to build everything their own from scratch because I think that just sucks more money and delays time from providing great exit opportunities. Because in the end of the day, Marina, we really need to think about who is helping this revolution happen and that investors need to have a return on their investments because otherwise that's a non-profit work and non-profit work is important and great, but it has a certain ceiling that it can hit and moving forward, capitalism needs to take over. Oh, wow. Bold, bold statements here. Very interesting. Yeah, I have read a bit about companies in the 
sugarcane space and the ethanol production that have excess capacity of fermenters, for example, in Mexico, that can be used by other players in the space. We're saying that your honey, at least the plant-based part, contains the sugar, which is the easiest part probably, the food assets and also plant extracts. And I wonder how much is there already a supply chain for this and how much do you need to build up from scratch? Because it doesn't seem like these kind of ingredients of honey are so widespread in use, or are they? Sugar is widely available. Yeah. What's important with sugar is that you get the best deal in terms of sourcing and that you get an international reliable partner that can follow you as you grow. The more difficult part was definitely on everything that's not sugar, understanding how we can build that successfully, how we can create a robust supply chain that can also empower us to make different varieties of honey. Right now, we have one variety of honey that's somewhere in between if clover honey and acacia honey would have an affair and then they would have a baby out of that affair. That would be our product number one. But in terms of further products, there's 300 varieties of honey. We want to make at least 10 major ones And we had to spend a lot of time, invest a lot of time on a supply chain. All the supply chains right now are under heavy pressure. And I need to say that I really feel fortunate and happy that we started in time so that we didn't have to launch within the worst part of the supply chain crisis. I really think that all the founders that had to scale and launch a year ago or today, it's harder for them versus us who are still pre-market. I think that's something that a lot of VCs are realizing now with their investments that, oh, this is not software. This is hardware in terms of, it's squishy hardware. <laughs> it's eatable hardware, but it's a asset-heavy business. And if you follow the Oatly recalls, if you actually think about how hard it is to make a, you could say, update on a food product. If something goes wrong in a software product, you launch a new version tomorrow and nobody needs to know about it. If something goes wrong with a hardware product or with a food product especially, you need to pretty much shout out into the world, we messed up. Don't buy our products. Take it off the shelves. You need to let all the retailers know. You need to let as many customers know as possible. And the price of trying to collect all of these goods back is just enormous. Like <laughs> I was telling this it's recently a- to somebody and she was like, you are making me question whether I want to be in food. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It's fun. It's fun. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's really hard. Now that you mentioned the, how manufacturing is hard and all the recalls and things like that, I just want to share that one of the unconventional opinions that I formed during building Bio in the past almost three years now is that the lean startup methodology that's very famous in the software development, there's this great book by Eric Ries that I read a couple of times mm. that really wants to help founders be scrappy and be very lean. I think that doesn't work in the food industry. And here's why. From the moment you launch something new and think about all of us founders that need to replace bacon, cheese, honey with animal-free analogs, if we just follow the lean startup methodology that says work on something and launch and improve, that actually doesn't work well in the food industry because the moment you put something to someone in their mouth to taste, that's the moment where they create emotional connection with that story, with that name, and with that product. And if, if it doesn't taste great, there's a chance that people wouldn't want to taste 1.1, 1.2 mm. version, 2.1. And the moment that they created that 
connection that won't be as empowering connection as it could be with some other products. So I really believe that we have a responsibility. When I say we, I want to start with investors, with the founders, consultants, employees, everybody in the space. We have a responsibility to acknowledge that building a food product, that's something special. And that requires a nuanced approach because we are making something that people three or more times per day put in their mouth, digest. That's the energy, that's the health, that's the nutrition for folks. And we can just do copy-paste models from software or any other industry. And we really need to be patient because manufacturing is hard. And to do it right, it requires a lot of resources and a lot of smart people to get involved. Just looking into our first product and our first technology, and we have two technological approaches. One is leaning more on the plant-based science and the other one, the precision fermentation. Just thinking about the one that is supposed to be easier and it's easier, the the plant-based one where we advanced more, just thinking about all the hurdles and challenges that we've been solving. You think about the benchtop scale, you make a tasty product, people taste it, and then you move it up on a pilot facility and maybe it works there. You have some tweaks, you have some learnings and you take those learnings to a co-packer and then you realize that, you know what? A co-packer doesn't have that much of a patience as the pilot facility partner and that maybe that certain step, you know, it's not commercially viable to be done in such a way like you did it at a pilot facility that you have just for yourself within a week. And then you have a co-packer makes a product for you and for other companies. There's this dilemma, should I do a co-packer? Should I build a manufacturing facility? All of this, Marina, is really serious questions that I think are really hard. So I always congratulate investors that invest in the food and food tech space and founders wanting to dedicate a decade of their lives, whereas in some other industries, founders can have three exits within a decade building, you know, ads management app or something like that. Yeah, it's quite interesting how a lot of the startups They start with very novel ingredients, very diversified crops, or they don't want to go with soy or pea. They take something more fancy and then it's fantastic and it tastes great. But then they go into growth stage and they realize there's no supply chain that's significant enough to actually supply their business or there are other challenges with certain manufacturers not being familiar with the processes for this specific ingredient. And then it's just going to become so complicated and let's Oh, okay, okay, we go back to peace and soy, okay. Maybe my last question on the content part of it. You've already talked about the controversy or like what you find is a controversial opinion that you have. Maybe we jump in to the other question, which is if you would have 50 million and you wouldn't be able to invest in Bio, what specific startups or solutions would you invest it in? That's a great question. I think we need to invest a lot of resources and money into education of the wider population around what food is, how is it made, and what's the impact of us producing food so that we can feed ourselves in our future generations. What's going on is that many folks don't see the food industry beyond what they like to create as labels or approaches or things like that. The future of food needs to involve scientific and technological advancements because without that, it's really not possible for us to feed the entire world. If we just think about the privilege that you and I have as Europeans and people in the Western Hemisphere, that's a privileged place to be at. 
And there's a whole world out there that we need to feed. And if we just think about creating cool brands that satisfy certain geographies, demographics, I don't think that's actually moving the needle. I would invest a certain amount of that 50 million into educating folks, understanding how we can talk about certain things without certain labels, how we can get what's behind different approaches and how actually throughout our history, we've been changing how we interact with food. Even if you're not vegan, if you eat cheese today, that's not the cheese that was made in Sayway. There's a lot of biotech in your cheese that, in your friend cheese that you're eating today. And I'm sorry to all those that might get offended with what I'm saying, but you know what? Your brie and camembert is biotech versus how was it made 50 years ago. So that's one thing. The other thing that I would invest money is definitely back to the capex and infrastructure. I really think that we need more of a separate hardware and infrastructure startups, essentially hardware platform startups. I think developing those companies is going to be essential for all of us out there that we're going to need certain help that makes sense for us to partner with someone versus for us to plan, fundraise, and build for that. So education and infrastructure platform, I would put $50 million. What I would also make sure is to communicate to investors that most likely it is that another app or a software won't actually move the needle in terms of our evolution. I think we've probably reached the maximum of it. And it's hard for me to understand how we ended up investing more money in metaverse than in alternative food. I'm not disrespecting you. I'm not saying that crypto, metaverse, and stuff like that isn't affecting our future. I'm just saying that we need to prioritize food. If you enjoy this season, we have a bunch more. Check out season one on cell-based meat and season three on the consumer acceptance of alternative proteins. We seek to make our content as evergreen as possible, so you can still listen to it, even if it was released a while back. Thanks to our senior producer, Celeste Gupta, online content editor, Robert Griffin, and Sherry Sussex for doing industry research. Let's move the food industry from harmful to healthy, from polluting to sustainable, from red to green. 